Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeehouse.com. The show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back to the first in a long time, no more silence episode on the Francisca Show podcast. All the disclaimers today, we are putting out suicide triggers and sexual abuse, emotional abuse, all the horrible things out there. So if you do not want to be listening to this, log off. We'll have a great episode waiting for you another time. But so many things have happened in the last few hours. And uh, we have a guest here who is in a very raw and real place, wants to share, and who I think we need to hear from. And before I give the platform over, I'd like to read a post, if I may, by our guest. I'm in an F type of mood. And if this bothers you, go F yourself. If you've never struggled with suicidal ideation, count your blessings. Do I have things to live for? Yes. Is life worth living? No. Does this make sense? No. Is this what you mean by the heart telling you one thing and the brain another? Yes. I know I have a good heart, but it is broken. And today it feels like it cannot be healed. I read this post a couple of hours before I learned about the suicide of Heimwalder. And I know I haven't covered him since the allegations came out, but I already have a relationship with you. We've met a couple of months back and I know you had something to share. So I thought this would be a wonderful opportunity to really start this conversation or reignite this conversation again on this podcast. So without any further ado, welcome to the show, Yona Cohn. Thank you for having me, Francisca. The thing about triggers, I can only speak from my own experience, uh, because at least that is what I feel comfortable sharing. And that is what... I never know when it is going to come and when it is going to happen. So in a sense, I have to be in a constant state of hypervigilance, which in itself is extremely difficult to deal with. The thing with Chaim Walder that, that really triggered me in his suicide or apparent suicide, whatever the case may be, a lot of different things. For one, when the allegations first came out, it was rather quickly accepted that we would believe that the survivor, that his victims were believed. And even in the from community that has had, in my opinion, a very poor response, although it has gotten better, a poor response to victims, this was much quicker than even I could have ever imagined or expected. So in a sense, I was filled with gratitude like we're starting to get it we're going to listen to survivors but in a sense i was like hey let's not forget about the victims who paved the way for us to get to even to this place where we would even acknowledge a victim let alone believe a victim so that was one thing but the thing that really triggered me was number one suicidal ideation is something i have struggled with for a long time my first true experience with it was when I attempted suicide at 14. Obviously, it didn't work. But, you know, so this goes by and I'm 39 now. So we're going back over 25 years. 
But the thing with Chaim Walter that really just bothers me, here, I don't recall when the allegations came to light, or at least the first public allegations came to light, but it was rather quick. It wasn't that long ago. About a month ago. About a month ago, so very quickly. And he decided to take his own life. I'm assuming it was a suicide and it was a murder, which I which I believe. He decided, at least this is what I feel, and this is how I took it, that he cannot deal with the consequences of his actions. His actions against one victim is horrific, horrible, whether it was a child, whether it was an adult, just horrific to take that innocence away from someone. But the tens and 20, 30, who knows how many victims and, and over how many years, the fact that he could no longer get away with it was too much for him. And whether there were financial consequences, legal consequences, whatever the case may be, he couldn't bear to deal with it. And whether it's shame, whether it's something else, I, I don't know. But for his survivors, they are going to have to deal with what he did for the rest of their lives. And when we hear of allegations to someone as young as 14, for example, it was the youngest I heard. Uh, hopefully they live a long and healthy life. We're talking about hopefully over 100 years that they're going to have to deal with it. Time may make it easier, you know, different things. Yeah, tell us about your experience. So I grew up in a Hasidish, typical Hasidish home in Bar Park, normal, went to Hasidish yeshivas, and I was groomed, sexually abused, raped over several years by several different people. Some I remember, some I don't remember. And two of the people who I do remember that raped me are no longer alive. Now, I believe they died by natural causes. Uh, I think cancer happens to be both of them, but it, they didn't take their own lives. And I'm thinking to myself, they do not have to deal with the consequences that I have to deal with. They died way before their actions became public knowledge. So any, any consequences that they had to deal with was internal, just between themselves and any God they may believe in, Hashem or whatever. For me, it is something I have to deal with every single day, and it interferes with everything. It interferes with me being a husband. It interferes with me being a father. It interferes me being, you know, a professional. A, you know, it has led to permanent disabilities such as PTSD, depression, anxiety, addiction. And while I don't blame anyone for my addictions or anything like that, because I am the one who chooses to do something, not someone else, but it would be really foolish and ignorant to ignore what led me to these things. So how do I take ownership and acknowledgement over something when someone took the easy way out? And I'm thinking, why don't I take the easy way out? And, that, and that's what has been super triggering to me today. You know, 
in a way I can't get off social media, but I need to be in social media. It's that economy and suicide honestly is the easy way out because the other option of suicide is actually acknowledging the problems and the issues and dealing with it. And like I mentioned on my post, if you, if someone's never experienced suicidal ideation or clinical depression or any sort of depression, anxiety, addiction, can't be so lucky. I remember there was one instance where I was walking with a friend in Manhattan and a Powerball was like $600 million. And he asked me if I wanted to split a ticket with him. And I'm saying, I can't. He goes, what do you mean? Well, I can't gamble. I'm addicted to gambling. And he didn't understand that it's not that if I lose, like we didn't really think we were going to win. But if I lost a dollar, it wouldn't affect me financially. But if I place that bet, I wouldn't be able to stop right there. It would lead to other bets and it would lead to bigger, you know, and, and go down that rabbit hole. And he couldn't understand it. And what I told him was, congratulations, you're not an addict. And I think a lot of the difficulties that I face is, and this is not a, I, a thing that I blame on people, but people, there are certain people who do not understand what it means to live with a broken heart, a diseased brain, where the, the brain and heart are constant fighting and in constant conflict. And part, you know, and part of the Chaim Walder thing that I think also is super triggering is why are survivors, why are victims being believed now versus 20 years ago or 30 years ago? That doesn't make sense to me. But then it does. It took us, it took previous victims before me who spoke up and it was sort of like a snowball going down a mountain and turning it into an avalanche. And now victims are being heard. Rabbanim are speaking publicly about it, acknowledging that it is an issue. Today is just one of those days where, you know, thankfully, I some friends reached out to me. Some friends pushed back at my negative talk, my negative beliefs. Today was not a good day. So take me through a day like today. I work in the financial world and now is sort of like between Christmas and New Year's is sort of very slow. So I wasn't preparing to do a lot anyways. So I was very, very lethargic, woke up later than usual, didn't have as much coffee as I normally had. And then I was a little bit more, let's go on social media, let's just see what's going on. And then the Chaim Walder thing came up and that just blew up any semblance of control of what I was going to do today. And it was rambling on social media, you know, sort of the post that you related to today, taking my medication, uh, engaging with friends who are comfortable reaching out to me today. I'll be honest. I broke my sobriety, taking a sedative, trying to sleep when I know I had stuff to do dealing with normal life. Uh, in terms of, you know, I have four children and there's always something going on with four children, not feeling I was within myself. I felt like it was physically I was here, but I felt like outside of my body. It doesn't make sense to a lot of people, but I felt very disconnected, very disjointed. And 
I honestly thought, you know, screw it. Maybe today's the day that I just, you know, take my own life. I have no plans. I have no plans on doing it, but that's sort of what's going on today. May I go a little deeper here? The emotional or the the talk that's going on in the mind, the news breakout about the suicide or suicide question mark. What thoughts go through your mind? Like he took the easy way out. Why can't I just do that? Where do you like align yourself with him because he's the bad guy and you are on the other on the flip end? That's that's an interesting question. His motives is not really something I I think about too much or have thought about or I think will ever think about. It's the consequences. He was a well-known figure. I had his books in my home. One of my children really loved his books. Something I know is very common across a lot of Jewish homes. I am no longer from. He was a prominent from figure, and his victims were believed. And when I started speaking up, when I was abused, I was not believed. And even if I was believed, it was covered up in many different ways. When I think about his victims, they have to deal with the consequences of being abused by someone very public. So they're going to hear his name. They're going to see his name. They're going to read about his name, whether it's on social media, whether it's in print media or whatnot, uh, whether it's in gossip circles, whatnot. He was an extremely well-known, prominent public figure. And his consequences of his suicide was that he doesn't actually have to be present and deal with what he did. But his victims have are here and they will and they are going to have to deal with it. And if they don't deal with it, if they don't acknowledge what happened to them, and this is no judgment here, there are going to be consequences. There's going to be depression, there's anxiety, dissociation, PTSD, addiction, suicidation, depression, anxiety, you name it. But thankfully, a lot of them are being heard. A lot of them are being believed. So hopefully it won't be as difficult for them. When I started speaking up as a child, let alone as an adult 20 years later, at first I was not believed. So why was I not believed? Can you share that experience the first time? Who was it? Who did you share this with? I have to be careful with what I share publicly because I'm involved with the lawsuit under the Child Victims Act. But the first time I physically said the words that I was being abused or I was describing abuse was when I was, I think, 10 or 11, I think 11. And the response by a Rebbe in my yeshiva was, he slapped me across the face and uh, he said, which translates into, we're not allowed to talk about such things. And I'm thinking in my head, what the, am I supposed to do now? You go to a teacher and, and he himself turned out to be an abuser. That teacher? That teacher. That teacher turned out, and he was probably the worst one. And both of these men that I'm referring to, the first one that I went to the teacher about and this teacher, they're both dead now. So this is all the thoughts that I thought I had forgotten about. They're still here. 
and they came back with a vengeance today. And today, my mental health this morning was not the greatest. Like, I wasn't in the best of frame of mind. So this sort of just tipped me over the edge. When was it that you were believed for the first time? This is something that I haven't shared too many times, but I have shared in the past. I know footsteps in the from world is a very, very uh, touchy subject, and it's a very hot button issue. For anyone who doesn't know what footsteps is, can you please give us a rundown? Footsteps is an organization that helps individuals who are thinking of or looking or interested in maybe living a different way. In my case, they helped me with, you know, some uh, social services. In others, it's education. In others, it, you know, it could be different things. But what was interesting was as an adult in, in the summer of 2015, I had a massive panic anxiety attack. It's when I first publicly just even shared as an adult, like in a very public way that I was abused and that I was raped. And leaving Yiddishkeit to Frumkeit was never on my agenda. It, was, it wasn't even a thought. And I reached out to certain people that people in the Frum community told me to, and they let me down. How did they let you down? By not following through with uh, therapy that said they would provide, for not following, for not checking in on me, for not connecting me with qualified case managers or counselors, and for people who were unable to do the work that was told can be done. Being a caseworker on something about sexual abuse and rape and things like that, it's not easy. And it's not for everyone. And it's, even if someone is willing, they have to be able to. And not everyone is able to. It's not a judgment. It's just the reality. It's very difficult. I kept on spiraling and spiraling and spiraling. And I heard about footsteps. What I thought of footsteps as a from person was that they were going to make me not from. And if that's what I thought their agenda was, I wanted nothing to do with them. I reached out to someone that I knew or suspected was a Footsteps member and asked uh, them the following question. Be honest with me. Be straight with me. Don't give me no BS, no political answer. Just tell me straight. Are you a Footsteps member? Why did you join? And if I joined, will they make me not from? Will that be their agenda? We had a probably close to two and a half hour conversation. I reached out to Footsteps. They sort of did some sort of intake just to get basic information about me. And for the first time, I shared sort of like a group meeting. I shared my story for the first time. And when I shared my story, I remember I was looking down the whole time. I couldn't look at anyone's faces. I sometimes cry. I sometimes don't cry. This time I was crying a little bit. And when I looked up, I think it was seven or eight people in the room uh, comprised of men and women, some older than me, some younger than me, mostly younger than me. And they were all crying. Every single one without fail was crying or had tear or was puffy eyes or they were crying. And I thought to myself, Wow, someone actually believes me. They didn't question me. They didn't say things, well, why didn't you tell me sooner? Or why didn't you do this? They just sat there and listened and let me express how I felt. 
And that's what started me on this journey today. Do I regret opening up? Yes. Because here's the harsh reality of being honest. It hurts. And when I think of his Chaim's, and, and again, to me, today is all about still processing Chaim Walder's suicide, even though he never personally, I've never had any interaction with him. The only interaction I've had with him, like I mentioned, was his books were in my home. His victims and survivors, to a certain degree, are being believed. They're, to a certain degree, they're being heard. And in a way, that's amazing because hopefully that will lead them to get the proper support they need in a way that is needed for them. And hopefully they won't have a delay of 20 plus years of not being heard. And Chaim will never have to deal with the consequences anymore. He's dead. But we're all alive in this world right now. Not in this world, he won't. Can you talk to us about what footsteps was like for you? And you did mention how you don't associate yourself or you don't consider yourself a from Jew. Um, I'm not putting the label on you. I'm repeating. I'm repeating what you expressed about yourself. Would you like to share more about that decision process? I know you're still very respectful of from people. Some of them, I guess. I have no issues with people who are from. I have no issues with people who are not from. My only issues with people who are from are people who use it to cover up evil. So for if a from person would tell me, for example, and I've had these conversations before, sexual abuse doesn't happen with us. And they use it because we're God-fearing from Jews. I'm, I'm thinking, wait a minute, that's just not true. And so a person's personal belief, that that's their personal belief. If you want to have a conversation about what I believe is real, that's a separate conversation. But it took me a while to get there. When I first decided to leave Yiddishkeit, I was the reason that the firm community says everyone leaves. I was angry. I was bitter. And one of the things that I'm still angry and bitter about, to be honest, is, well, if there are people that are leaving because they were abused, because they were raped, why don't you do something about that? I mean, that, that boggles my mind. If you don't think people leave for ideological reasons just because they don't believe, and it's some kind of trauma, do you realize you're acknowledging trauma then? And if there is trauma, why don't you deal with, some, deal with it or acknowledge it? And my evidence, my proof to that they can address traumatic things. Think of all the wonderful organizations that the firm community does have. And I can personally attest to some of the great work some of these organizations have done. If it's an issue, for example, related to infertility, there's organizations for that. If there's issues related to cancer, there's several organizations to that. If there are issues related to poverty, several organizations to that. There's so many organizations addressing so many different things. I mean, 
Hatzalah is one of probably the most well-known organizations. I know non-firm people who will call Hatzalah first before 911. And Hatzalah. What about JCW? JCW. <clears throat> oh boy. Jewish Community Watch. I don't think they exist anymore. There's an Israeli version. The Israeli, I, I'm not sure what the name is. It's Mugain or something run by a woman named Shana Aronson. We had her on the podcast. The idea of JCW was great initially, but there were a lot of issues with it in terms of hiring people who were unethical or doing unethical things. Like what? Not being kosher with money and really not advocating for victims or protecting victims. They've, but the difficult thing is they did do some good work. That did bring a tremendous amount of awareness. And that's sort of something that I think the firm community has also has fallen victim to. Even to, you know, for example, a wonderful organization that I think does a lot of great work, but it's not perfect, is something like um, Amudin. You have to be open to, critic- to criticism. And this is something that I think my biggest issue with the firm community if we're going down that rabbit hole is no amount of any great work that is done is ever an excuse for any of the bad things. I remember when I first started speaking publicly about child sexual abuse, where I grew up, one of the common things was, why don't you talk about the guy and why don't you talk about the Catholic church? And I'm like, what does that have to do with me? And, and I'm like, what does that have to do with me? Why do I need to speak about the Catholic Church if I have no experience with the church? I never want to have experience with the church. And what does that have to do with the fact that it's going on in the firm community? So that's one common thing that came up. The other one, and, and again, I can't begin to describe how many times, is they do so much good work. And I'm like, great. Just because you do great work and it needs to be acknowledged and it needs to be addressed is not an excuse. In the same way, if I were to say something as horrific as all Hasidic people are rapists, if I were to say something like that, I would be vilified, I would be destroyed because it's just, it's just not true. It's blatantly not true. I would say more than most Hasidim are really nice, genuine, good people. More than most. The overwhelming amount. But are there people who are Hasidic who are terrible people? Yes. And just to acknowledge the good and not acknowledge the bad is sort of silencing victims. This needs to be addressed. So that's sort of... And, and so JCW sort of became a little bit of... A little bit... I, In my opinion, in my humble opinion, they became too big too fast. They had no genuine control, and they weren't open to criticism. Can we talk about the differences in different communities? I know, for example, the community I live in, there is a program. I don't know how early they start, but in the schools, they start talking about child safety. But they they talk about children, about healthy touch, okay interaction, not okay privacy, secrecy, closed doors, what's appropriate, what's not. And 
child safety and it's it's done beautifully and it, they start it very young and is the Hasidish community really behind? I can only speak from my experience when I was there because I'm no longer in there. And even when I started sending my children to schools, it was never to the type of schools that I grew up in, Borough Park Mainstream Hasidic schools. My intuition tells me no, because they have always been very secretive. They've always been very squeamish about this topic. But I can tell you when I was there, there wasn't even a notion of this type of topic. Anyone who spoke anything about sexual abuse, safety, touch, anything in that, anything related was called a manoval, which I, I think is translated to a pig or a disgusting person, right? And I have, my gut intuition tells me that that is still the case today. I could be wrong, um, but they are extremely behind. Talking about um, safety is not talking about sexual matters, right? It's not talking about sexual activity. That's talking about safety is just, and I think part of the problem is if they were to talk about it in a healthy, ethical, moral, supervisory way with licensed practitioners, you know, understanding the cultural nuances of a Hasidic community versus a Litvish community versus a Yeshivish versus a modern Orthodox. I'm aware of the nuances of the different communities. There would be, and it's almost like that it's acknowledging that there might be predators, that there might be some bad people. And if we acknowledge that there might be some bad people, then we might have to do something about it. And that's not something they're willing to do, I think, or able to do. Okay, so two things. One, as you just said, with licensed practitioners, and I'd love to just you know nod my head here. Meanwhile, Chaim Walder was a licensed practitioner, a therapist, and he wrote children's books and he started, he founded the organization for children. It's just really puts a hole in a balloon of you can't just trust people because they have a title and everyone needs to be educated and trust their instincts. And that's an extremely fair point. And I absolutely agree to that. The only reason why I say licensed and it's simply because there's a lot of unlicensed therapists who don't know what they're doing, who are not trained in what they're doing. They're called uh, Askanim, they're called Aitzegebers or, you know, whatever title they are given. But that is the, the boundaries, you know, start with someone who is licensed, but there needs to be certain processes and procedures in place, right? Because again, what Chaim Walder has, one of the things that I hopefully it, it teaches us, if you will, is that no matter how big or famous a person is, we have, we have to be vigilant. We have to be not skeptical. But we, we have, have to have boundaries. We have to trust our instincts. We need to recognize isolation versus privacy. And we have to recognize that some that there are people in power who will use their position and privilege to commit these atrocious acts 
and use it to cover it up and use their influence, whether it's political, religious, you know, whatever influence they have. Um, I myself was, you know, as a child was sent to these supposed uh, psychologists that I can tell you broke my confidentiality. If anyone has gone to any sort of therapy, they know the only time a therapist is allowed to break confidentiality, A. Is if you're endangering yourself or others. Or if there's a uh, legal a court order. But unless there's a court order, which doesn't have, which is really difficult to get. If a someone is a danger to themselves or a danger to others, A, it is their obligation to break confidentiality. I remember speaking as a child to the to my supposed therapist, who everything I said was reported back to my rebane, everything. And I was punished for it. So that's why when I speak, so that's why I mentioned license, but you're right. There has to be processes in place that are, and I think the most important thing is when someone makes a claim that they were abused, that they were raped, that they were touched. What is our, what is step one? That, to me, that is because that, that's the foundation. What is step one? Do we believe the person or do we say absolutely not? And the reason why I bring up this point and why I think it's so critical it doesn't matter who the person they are accusing of. It, the, the person could be very famous. The person could be not so famous. And here's something that I've thought about a lot. The reason why I think Chaim Walder has hit a lot of us in many different ways, me in one way, but why it's become sort of such a it's sort of taken a story onto its own, a life onto its own, is because he was an extremely famous individual. He was an extremely well-known individual. Uh, up to a certain point, he was extremely well-liked and well-respected. He was looked at, you know, when it comes to, forget, forget setting aside his books for a moment, right? Which were very famous and very well-known. He was really looked up to and admired and sought out for guidance and for help and advice. So when someone like that betrays us, it's devastating. It is absolutely devastating and it's nauseating. But here's the thing, and I wish more people in the room community would understand this, and this is one of my biggest gripes, for anyone who is not a victim, for anyone who is never physically harmed by Heimwalder, that is devastated by his actions, I'm thankful that you're devastated because it at least tells me you're a good person. And when you hear something like that, it nauseates you. But just remember, it hurts the victims a lot more. They're not just devastated, they're destroyed. And because not only were they betrayed, they can, this name is going to be in their lives for a really, really long time. 
For some, it's going to be, okay, what's the next story going to happen? What's the next big story going to happen? But this is something. So, and, and, I, and this devastation that a person might feel is only temporary. And don't let that temporary acknowledgement and and therefore I'm not going to deal with the consequences supersede someone that has to deal with it on a permanent basis. And I think that's a huge disconnect. What do you think is happening with the family right now? I can't help but think about them and what they are going through. With Chaim's family? Yeah. Assuming two months ago they were planning to be at some Pesach program, who knows, be a speaker. And and now, you know, the family's name is shamed. They have to, assuming they didn't know, who knows? What what are your thoughts? When it comes to these issues, I always give uh, the benefit of the doubt. Because the nature of predators is they're very good at hiding their their behavior, right? So I'm I am not going to assume that his wife knew or his kids knew. I'm not going to assume anything like that unless someone tells me that they knew or they I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I imagine how his wife and children and family and close ones are feel are just sick to the stomach. They're devastated. They're they feel betrayed, they feel confused. They are don't know what to do. They, uh, I, I am fearful for some of their lives, mentally and physically. Um, and how, in my mind, how could they not be devastated? How could they not feel this? If you've ever felt nauseous, where you just couldn't eat, nothing, like there was nothing okay. But there was nothing you can do about it, right? I have to imagine that's how they feel on a really deep level. They feel betrayed. They feel devastated. And it's and, and to me, it's almost like it came out of nowhere, even though it didn't, because this was something that, but when it became public, it took on such a life of its own that any potential of keeping it quiet or avoiding having to deal with it was gone and they feel angry they feel sad um you know confused i'm sure and this is and again this is something they're going to have to deal with for the rest of their lives and i have pity for them but this is a you know an interesting issue that you bring up that reminds me of something that happened to me when i first started speaking up you know, I mentioned that two of my abusers that I know that I know are dead. And one of the counter arguments for why I shouldn't go public about my story about anything was, but what about his wife and what about his kids? And I was like, it took me a second to realize, okay, I'm going to go with the benefit of the doubt his wife did not know or his kids did not know. But I said to this person, and I so desperately want to say his name. But I said to this person, why are you putting that kind of pressure on me? I feel for my abuser's wife and my abuser's kids. I do. 
but don't you think the responsibility should be on him? Are you saying I shouldn't take care of myself in a way that I need to because of his wife and kids? It's not about you doing this to his family. It's he already did this. You are just notifying them or making them deal with it, but it's his fault. And that's what I think his wife and kids and any of his loved ones, families, nephews, nieces, you know, any living relatives are going to have to deal with. What do you say to people who are like, is this even true? You know, people start allegations. If you start believing everyone, there's no, somebody just commented on my post that I posted about two hours ago. One out of 20 comments was when there's fire, the fire spreads really fast and we have to be responsible about believing. This is a very touchy subject. And uh, whoever's listening, I'm sure I'm going to get some kind of flack for saying this. This notion that it's not possible has to stop. That's number one, that it's impossible that he did it has to stop. That's step one. Step two is we have to put some kind of measure in place to say, is this possible? And unfortunately, we see it time and time again with famous people, it is possible. To the people who say, my first question to them is, do you really believe it's not possible? Do you really believe he didn't do it? That's number one. And number two, why do you believe that? Because you don't want to acknowledge that someone of Chaim Walder's statue could be this horrific human being that he was. Because if you acknowledge that, that means you would have to deal with some serious issues. Well, it comes from allegations or allegations, innocent until, until proven guilty. Innocent until proven guilty is only in the court of law. I want to know, once once. Chaim Walder's infamy became that he became once it really became apparent of how horrific he was in terms of all the abusers. I mean, all the claims that were made against him. How many of these people that didn't that say maybe it's not true would send their kids to him? Would feel comfortable being alone in a room with him? Thank you for addressing that. Believing him or not believing him victims is very different very very different but if we just say just to anyone who says oh it's when this fire this fire and it's like 22 people are just making up the story really why and this is the story they're making up i you would you would have to they would have to ask themselves why they actually believe that because it's it's Extremely far-fetched. Well, I agree with you, but I wanted to bring this up anyway. I would like to wrap up this conversation. I'm sorry, I'm taking the microphone away. But you did bring up that you come from a Hasidish background. And just recently, I know Hasidim, Hasidish listeners, listen to this podcast. Even though we don't really have Hasidish speakers, we had it once, I think, or twice. But I got this message it was after he had listened to the episodes on my Orthodox life. And he was complaining that we're generalizing a whole community and it isn't right. It's not correct. It's not true. He was arguing one specific point of something that was discussed in one of the episodes. 
So then I asked, did you feel, if you didn't feel represented in my Orthodox life on Netflix, did you feel better represented unorthodox on Netflix? Dwadi said, great, a little more accuracy. Thank you. The point I'm trying to make is I came to say, I would love for you to come on and speak up because there's very little information of what is true in your community. And he said, well, that's not our approach. Our approach is to keep things within the community, not to speak up, not to be public. And I said, well, the first step to fighting other people generalizing about you or creating narratives about your communities is by giving them a narrative to work with instead of blocking microphones and blocking the cameras and making yourselves look like you're not open to discussing sexual abuse, that you're not open to discussing real issues that you're not safe from. So I'm using this chance to call out to any of our listeners who may have a Hasidic background, who maybe associate themselves right now as Hasidic people, who are willing to speak up. And by Hasidic, I'm excluding Chabad. By the way, we have plenty of Chabad people who are happy and ready to take the mic. I'm speaking the non-Chabad Hasidic community or Breslov who are willing to talk about the issues within the community. I think Hasidim who are consuming media, social media and Netflix do not see accurate representation of themselves in media. And they're ignoring the fact that they are consuming it. They're pretending like it's still not affecting them. So what do you have to say, Matt? There's a couple things I want to say to that. Um, keeping things keeping things internal, what happens if keeping things internal leads to further victimization? What happens if keeping it internal means dealing with people who are not qualified and capable? I'll say this once and I'll say this a million times. I am no longer from, I don't think I will ever be from. I do not think Hasidim are bad. I do not think all Hasidim are bad. I think more than overwhelming are phenomenal great people. My experience should not be taken as a total and complete representation of the Hasidic community because my experience is my experience. But to keep things in, you know, internal means not publicizing my story. And not and keeping things internal means not being completely honest. And if the Hasidic community wants a fair and accurate representation according to their standards, they need to be honest. They need to say we are not perfect. We are not absolute perfect beings. We make mistakes. We're willing to learn from them. We're willing to do better. But you have to be honest, just like with my addiction, I can't begin to deal with my addiction, my depression, my things, unless I'm acknowledged that I have a problem. The Hasidic community has to do the same. And until they, and if they continue the way they are, these shows are going to continue to happen. And I think the biggest ill that people are doing, whatever side of the spectrum you're on, is saying my story is a complete representation of everyone. No, everyone's story is unique. Everyone's experience is unique. It's not about the Hasidic community being good or bad or sexual abuse happening a lot or a little. It's about it happens. Deal with it. How does the system deal with it? How does the leadership deal with it? Do they ignore it? 
do they believe they're each leadership, is, each leadership is very different. But those are the questions that will help you judge a community. Yeah. And, and if the, and again, if the leadership's decision is to keep it internal, you're going to get backlash because the idea of, and I th- I'll end with this, the idea of keeping it quiet and being silent and acting or pretending as if it doesn't exist beyond your... Dalaramos. Yeah. I was going to say that beyond your Dalaramos, that's gone. That idea doesn't exist anymore. And if you have a problem with that, well, it's the same thing I tell my kids sometimes when they ask me for something and I tell them no. Tough. So thank you so much, Yona, for coming on to this my pleasure. episode. It is called the No More Silence segment. So I think it's very clear what we're trying to do here. Speak up and give a voice. You're very welcome. You said you broke your sobriety today. So as a responsible interviewer today, I'll ask, when are you going to your next meeting? Thank you for asking. Um, I was in contact with someone today about not going today to a meeting. I'm going tomorrow, but I was in contact with someone in uh, my community, not my official sponsor about it. And uh, I, I, plan on being safe well my support and prayers are with you thank you stay safe and positive as positive as you can be thank you and think about all the people that still need you and want to learn from you thank you you are leading the way thank you for listening until the end i hope you appreciated this episode i'm sorry we had to bump the next episode to next week So make sure to stay tuned for that. Also check out other jewishcoffeehouse.com podcasts. And as always, thank you for sending me referrals for my podcast launch services. So stay tuned, stay safe, try to help someone if you can this week and see you next time.